this hilarious image of mine. Did you guys ever have like a birthday party when you were a kid and nobody ever showed up? <laughs> Did that? <laughs> a room this size, it had to have happened to one of us. It wasn't me, but, so I, I don't have any room to laugh. I just imagine like, <laughs> it's like a kid showing up to his own birthday party and like just his parents are there or something with a cake and like balloons and anyway, <laughs> the reason, <laughs> it's not funny at all. I'm so sorry. I don't know why I'm laughing. The reason I'm saying that is because that's how I felt. That's what I was scared of tonight. Uh, you know, we're in the central campus. We have over a thousand people at last week's kickoff. It was super fun. And then just that reality hits of, oh shoot, in seven days, we're going to be in the middle of a cornfield in Tiffin, and we're going to invite all of our friends back, and I don't know if anybody's going to show up. So, uh, good on you guys for making it out here. Super thankful and praying that you would find your way out here all week. That exit out on the uh, interstate is almost done, and that's going to cut like 10 minutes off your drive. That's super cool. So, thank you guys for those who drove and gave rides and invited people and did the shuttle stuff, like the burger rides and all that. That's awesome. So, really excited you're here. Um, my name's Ryan, if I haven't met you. Uh, please come introduce yourself because honestly, if I don't know you, tis the season for awful introductory conversations, right? Like not saying you're bad at them or I'm bad at them per se, but how many times in the past two weeks have you had a miserable introductory conversation over and over and over again? It's the same thing every single time. We have all these freshman events, tons, like half of your freshmen, that's awesome. But how many times have you freshmen been asked, yo, what's up, what's your name? Cool, cool. What suburb are you from? Like, where in Chicago are you from? Like, I'm from like Des Moines. That's like five hours of, from Chicago. Like, that's like your reference point. It's like, if you're from Chicago in here, nobody knows where you're from. Nobody knows where Rockford is. Nobody knows where Crystal Lake is. Nobody knows where any of those places are. So please stop talking about them like we know. Uh, sorry, I'm being cruel tonight already. I don't mean it. We love it, but it is the same thing over again. It's where are you from? What's your major? It's like, oh, I'm undecided or, oh, I'm pre-med and pretty much nothing else besides that. It's either you came in like really, really ambitious or you came in just like, man, I don't know. I'm just going to figure out what happened. Uh, I switched like three times. It's fine. Uh, the, these introductory conversations are incredibly important, right? Especially when you're on like people you really like and you, like, you, you want to be cool, right? You, you have one shot. You cannot blow it. You need to make a good first impression. Okay, I know I've told this story before, but a lot of you guys are new. But I mean, my, my first night, I think, in college when I, I started out in San Diego and I was out there and I remember being out there and it was like this massive picnic. So probably like, this many people all like eating dinner together or something. And I was kind of up like this and somebody's like, hey everybody, this is my friend Ryan. He's new, he's from Iowa. And I was like, oh, cool. And they're like, yeah, he looks like Matthew McConaughey. And I was like, ooh, okay. <laughs> I haven't heard that one before, sweet. Uh, you guys, I was buzzing. I was on top of the world. I literally just moved out to California and had the greatest compliment given to me of my entire life. Whether it's true or not, it doesn't matter to me. I'll take it. And then my buddy just yells out from the side with a, match, a couple hundred people. Yeah, or Mr. Tumnus. And that, <laughs> and if you don't know who Mr. Tumnus is from Narnia, he's like half goat. Like, <laughs> maybe sometime there'll be a picture. He's like, I've tried to dress up like him for Halloween, but you just can't find goat legs anywhere around here. Uh, <laughs> 
It's like goat down, man up, little red scarf umbrella, like kidnaps little girls. It's weird. Uh, and I was immediately just pounded into the ground in front of all my new friends. My first impression was terrible. I hope, freshman, I hope with all the goodness in me that I hope you've had better first impressions than me. But why, let's, let's dig into this a little bit. Why do we find our first impressions or these introductory conversations or telling our story in a capsule version, like why do we find that actually so important? Like what's unique about that now as compared to where you grew up? Well, as somebody who moved around a lot and all of you either being new to college or have been here a couple years, you know what's true is you get to reinvent yourself here. You can say whatever you want and nobody will know the difference. You could have been really cool in high school. You could have been not cool in high school. You could have had a ton of friends. You could have had nobody show up to your birthday party. You could have been the homecoming king or queen or you could have actually dropped out and just somehow gone to college. Literally, nobody knows anything. The story that you've been working up with like the rest of your life so far, like the first 18 plus years of your life, like that story that has been kind of like defining like your reputation or like the value that you have around other people or the significance that you find in your social settings, like that person doesn't, totally exist if you don't want them to. Like you have an opportunity to completely reinvent yourself, to actually start writing new your story. Because let's be real. Some of you guys come from awesome backgrounds, let's call it. Some of you guys have been incredibly blessed with awesome families. You've been uh, just, life's been easy. Let's just put it that way. God has shown a unique amount of favor in that sense to you. And you are really, really excited for that to carry on through college, your four years here, and all the way to the grave. But some of you guys actually don't like your story that much. And it's not totally your fault. Maybe you've been the victim. You've been oppressed. Maybe you just haven't had it as easy as the, per the people around you. Like home was actually really, really hard. And now that you're away... And now that you're out of the house and now that you're just kind of like on your own, going maverick, going rogue, going solo, and you're finding a new group of people to be with and a new people to impress, you're going to try really, really hard to make the rest of your story a lot better than the way it started. You are trying to rewrite your story and grab that ink pen that's penning the narrative of your life. And with good reason, you want to take control. The question is tonight, how are you going to ride this optimism, this, this fresh air that all of us are feeling? It's a new fall. Nobody knows each other. The cool field is level. Everybody's cool. It's awesome. Congratulations. How are you going to ride that optimism? How are you going to take advantage of that and become the hero of your own story? As the author of your own story, what will you do to make sure that you actually come out on top this time? As the main character in your own narrative, how are you going to make sure you find significance here at Iowa or at Salt Company? And with only one shot of this, how are you actually going to make sure that you end up a hero? Not a failure, but a success. How are you, the main character, the one in control, actually going to become the hero? What will people be saying about your life when it's all said and done? What good things are you going to leave behind? What will you be remembered for? What kind of difference can you make? This is a grenade, the grand conundrum right here, grand conundrum of what your four years are all about. This is a battlefield college, a battlefield where you are going to be fighting tooth and nail for significance.
In other words, there is an insane amount on your shoulders right now. Whether you want to accept it or not, there is an insane amount of pressure socially, academically, from one place or another on you to do this right. And by this way of thinking, this is actually how you're going to find significance in the rest of your story moving on from here. Because this isn't real life. You got, you got one shot, you got four years, and then it's the real world, right? It's freaky. Trust me, it sucks. But how are you going to make the most of it? And this is what the world trade. This is the narrative. It's a really simple, actually, formula. If you actually do these things, I think you'll be all right. You get the right major. So undecideds, you still got time. You're good. You get good enough grades. Okay, that's, that's easy enough, I think. You get a dumb money job where you just get straight cash right when you turn 22 and you just pay off your debt and you just live it up. You sleep around while you can. You have fun. You do stuff that your parents don't need to know about. You get married and settle down eventually. Maybe even have some kids. You definitely retire early and you die happy, period. That is the vision that's being cast for your story. It's not more complex than that. If you want to be significant in the world, be somebody that matters. That is your base. That is your foundation. That is what is going to make your life matter according to this world. If you do those things, congratulations, you are the hero. You're self-made. You got the American dream. You're the hero of your own narrative. And here's what I like to say about that. There is so much more for you tonight. There is so much more for you now. Tonight we're starting a three-week little mini-series uh, on who we are, right? Uh, where we're just going to tell you about who we are. Um, first off, if you notice, we used that graphic last year for this series. That kind of says something about who we are, right? So great first impression right there. Uh, we don't need to be too creative. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Um, but we have a shot, we as in Salt Company, as we, as we stand here on stage and we worship together and we present to you what we want to present to you, we, we have an opportunity to make an impression to you. The people sitting next to you have an, a really important role to play in making an impression to you. And what's it going to be? Well, this is what we're going to do. Really simply. Not just for these three weeks, but for every week. We're going we're gonna to take you here. We're going to take you to God's word, actually. We're going to open up Genesis today. We're going to go to the middle of the Bible next. We're going to go to the end of the Bible the week after that. We're going to do a flyover tour of what God's words actually say about our significance, what God's words actually say about our story and your story. Why would we do that? Why do we think that we need to hear what God has to say instead of what the other stuff that we are hearing is out in the world? Because there's actually a lot of people in here, believe it or not, there's actually a lot of people in here tonight who have tried to be the hero of their story already and failed. There's so many people in here who have already tried to play the hero card, have already tried to be the champion of their own story and have failed. There's people here who have tried to write the best possible story for their lives and it wasn't good enough. There's people here who have grinded and worked their butts off for significance in this world and have come up empty, but something in those people changed. What was it? God's word was better than any narrative that this world could throw at us. That the story that God wants to wrap you up in, even tonight, that we're gonna roll out for you, like the story that he's inviting you into, the story that he's in control of, is actually 
far more compelling. It's a much better vision. It's much more fulfilling and life-giving and meaningful than anything else I've ever tried to do on my own. And there are hundreds of people in here who've experienced that same God. That something better is that God is actually the main character of the story and not us. That something better is that God loves you more than you could ever find love in this life. That something better is actually that you aren't the hero, but the truth of tonight is simple. You need a heroic rescuer. The goal for tonight is that you, me, all of us would find our place in the greatest story of all time and that we would be swept up into the love of God as we see how he set forth on the greatest rescue mission for sinners of all time. All right, so tonight we're gonna dive into Genesis 3. If you got your phone or your Bible, why don't you open up to Genesis 3 with me? Uh, We're actually gonna hopefully enter into this story, this epic of the Bible, these first couple pages in a completely fresh way. So I, I hope there are so many people in here who have never stepped foot in a church in their life. That would be so cool. And if not, we gotta invite more people who don't go to church. But there are a lot of you I know who have been way churched, right? You have heard the stories over and over and over again. But my prayer tonight is that this should be fresh. My prayer tonight is that we look at it with fresh eyes. The the spirit of God would actually show us something that we haven't seen before. That whether we've heard it a million times or this is our first time, God's first words in his book would draw us into these characters' lives. And that we would actually find ultimately where we belong in these pages, all right? So... Get out your Bibles, Genesis 3. This is what's happened so far if you don't know. God creates everything. And he stamps his approval on it and calls it good. Mountains, good. Zebras, good. Flowers, good. The crazy ocean, I love it. It's good. Every single thing that God makes is good. He defines what is good. He is in control. He created everything from nothing. He is brilliant. And he's an artist. And it's so wonderful to go out into the Tiffin sunset and to be reminded of that. But you can only imagine God's first creation. How mesmerizing and how beautiful and how captivating it was. And what he did to cap it all off was the most loving and incredible thing that only our creator God would think to do. He created us. His crown jewel his most prized and cherished creation. He created man and woman and he made them naked and told them to have a lot of sex and enjoy his creation. It's in the Bible. And he loved them. And what he did to man and woman is he put a little bit more of himself into them. He put the image of God, think of like this, this fingerprint of God on mankind. That we would be uniquely What's the word? Uniquely blessed? That that we would be uniquely cherished, that we would be uniquely loved by God, unlike any other parts of creation, that we would actually work with him, that we'd actually tend this garden, that we would actually expand the goodness and the glory of God all over the world, that we would be in community with God, that we would walk with him, that we would talk with him, that we'd be satisfied in him, that we wouldn't even notice we're naked because we're so enthralled with all the goodness that he's given us, we don't even have time to be ashamed. This is God's original design and it's compelling and it's exciting. A story where God would receive all the glory that he is due. This luscious, beautiful garden 
eating with God, walking with God, a complete and utter dependence and satisfaction. That's what we were created to do. But then another character comes in, right? The snake, the serpent, the dragon, the deceiver, Satan. He crawls on the scene or walks on the scene. That's peripheral. Don't worry if he had legs or not. But the snake comes on the scene and lays out this wicked temptation. Look at this. And the man, starting in the 225, because I like that verse. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That's just so liberating. That's what a beautiful picture that is. Now the serpent takes a quick turn. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Which he didn't. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and knowing evil. What's happening here is subtle and yet it's incredibly powerful and incredibly evil. The first words that come out of the, the, the serpent's mouth, what are they? Did God actually say? This tempter is an absolute genius. We have to give credit where credit's due. This is smart. He doesn't talk up the woman of how great you are and how wonderful you are. No, instead, instead of making up a bold-faced lie, he takes a little seed called doubt and he plants it in the mind of God's most cherished creation. The tempter is a genius. He knows exactly where to hit God's beloved. No elaborate stories, no blowing smoke. It's one ounce of doubt that ends up growing like a cancer in the soul. And the story is not actually about eating fruit and trying hard to follow the rules. Like, do you know that? Do you know that God's intention is not just to be placed on this earth to follow rules? That's a lot of our view of church, but that's not actually what this is about. The story is all about belief, belief. The question on the surface might be, are you going to eat the fruit or not? Are you going to simply follow the black and white rule? Which it is about that. But underneath all of that, there's a deeper question that Satan is getting at, that the enemy wants all of us to tremble at and not know how to answer it. Are you actually going to believe the words of God that he has given to you? Are you actually going to believe what he said as true and good and in your best interest? How so? The serpent knew the rules and he hits us right where it hurts in our human pride. Yes, God gave you this whole garden to enjoy, but are you really free if you can't eat of that one tree? Hmm? You know, he takes the, the imagery, like the, the wonder and the captivation off of the thousand trees and he shifts it to the one forbidden tree that God commands him not to eat from. If he loved you, would he actually hold you back from that tree? If he actually wanted you to be free, if he was actually a good God, I know he's really powerful, but if he was actually good, then how could he hold back this one tree from you? The focus shifted from the thousands to the one and zoomed in on the forbidden. And as he plants his seeds of doubt, he starts to water it in verse four and five. Look back at that. You won't die, at least not yet. No, you're not gonna die when you eat. You'll actually be like God himself. This story, this life, 
is actually about you. You think you're free and thriving, take that forbidden fruit and taste what true freedom is. And you can feel the angst of this woman. You can feel it. You got to put yourself in the garden with her. Who is she actually going to believe here? Never have I ever wanted this forbidden fruit. And now it's all I can think about. I know that I'm God's child. I'm creating his image that he's like uniquely loved me and blessed me and given me part of himself that I made in the image of God. And I'm so valued and all, I'm so significant. Like I'm finding my love in God. But what would it actually be like to be like God? You can almost feel it with her. The slow effect of the poisonous doubt slowly making God's words quieter and quieter as she gets this louder vision of what true greatness and true freedom will actually taste like. It's like a little kite flying around, right? I never played with a kite, but you all know how they work. A kite flying around in the open sky, enjoying the endless expanse and the gusts of wind, keeping him up in the air, and a little birdie flies by. He starts talking to the kite, and he says, what are you doing, man? He's like, I'm flying, man. Look at this. Isn't it great? I'm free. It's like, oh, no, no, no. You're not free. And the kite says, what do you mean? He says, haven't you noticed that, that thing pulling at you? That thing kind of tugging you, that thing kind of annoying you. And all of a sudden, the kite does notice. It's the string. It's a string that's, that's every once in a while kind of tugging at the kite that never really bothered him before. But now this little birdie came and put some doubt in and said, you know what, kite? You think you can fly and have all this great expanse and it's a great conversation, by the way. And you have all this expanse and you're free and you're having a good time. You're doing what kites should do. But I'm telling you, if you want to be truly free, cut yourself loose and see what happens. And you can only imagine the doubt and wondering curiosity that would come. But you can also very distinctly imagine the horror that would come when that kite does break free from the string. And realize that that string wasn't actually holding him back at all. It was actually the only thing keeping him up and keeping him thriving, flying around in the expanse. And sure, he might fly around for two, three, four, five seconds and then gruesomely crash into the ground and die because the kite was alive in that story. <laughs> what happens next? What is she going to do? This, guys, is heartbreak. This is heartbreak in its truest form. I'm going to pick up in verse 6. Read with me there. 6 through 19. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it captivated her, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. That's why we started with 225. What a brutal transition. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, 
I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Then the man said, the woman you gave me to be with, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. What a bum. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. uh, Underline verse 15 here. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, this offspring, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Curse is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns, thistles, it will bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it, you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust, you shall return. This saga, this dilemma with the fruit and the trees was actually all about belief. When dependence upon God, the loving father and creator was not good enough, when being made in the image of God, given value by him, was not as appealing as being a God themselves. When being a part of God's story wasn't enough because they actually wanted to be the main characters. The fruit was eaten and you can almost hear the loving heart of the father shatter into a thousand pieces as he watched, knowing exactly what this meant for his newly rebellious children. Look at verse nine. Do you hear God say that? Do you hear what his voice is actually like when he says, where are you? Guys, he knew where they were. He's God. But as he went for his daily walk with his beloved children to talk about what they'd seen that day, what adventures they've gone on, what new animals they've discovered, they were gone. And even in his heartbreak, the father is giving his sinful kids a chance to run back to his arms and cry out for forgiveness. But instead they hide. He opens up a dialogue with his beloved, opening the door for reconciliation. And the pathetic and complacent man blames his wife. The wife blames the tempter. And the world was set on a trajectory of sin and pain and death that these characters could never have fathomed. It's not because there's magical powers of doom in this tree, guys. That's not what the point of this is. It's because the bloodline of rebels had begun who instead of preferring intimacy and dependence upon the author of life would prefer to be the heroes of their own stories. Where the devil promised their eyes would be open to new things. And instead all that they see is shame and their nakedness and depravity. Where the devil promised them to be on the same level with God and here they are hiding in a bush from their God. Where the devil promises them that they would not die, we see the worst curse of all, being cast out from the presence of a perfect loving God 
love himself, destined to die a long, slow, and lonely death that actually defines humanity to this day. The weight of this fall, the weight of this story and the tension that we have to feel is not that there was a broken rule, it's that there was a broken relationship. And all of us have feel like we, in whatever way, one way or another, whether now or, you have felt the pain of this. You have felt the sting of death in your life. You have seen brokenness in our world. You've had loved ones die. You've been sick yourself. You know the unnatural feeling of those who you care about betraying you. You know what it's like to have that gut-wrenching feeling when you have let others down. I don't need to convince you, anyone here that you are a sinner or that you are a part of the broken mess that is our world. But I do need to tell you why tonight. I need to tell you why you sin and why I sin. And it's right here, guys. It's right in the story. It's that we are more concerned with being the hero of our own stories than God. We are so desperately in love with ourselves that we can hardly fathom the thought of a greater hero entering the scenes to rescue us. We can hardly imagine the love and the life that our heavenly father might actually have for us. And I think the most heartbreaking scene in almost like literally the entire Bible If you read cover to cover, this might be one of the most heartbreaking sentences. Skip ahead to verse 23. It says, therefore, because all of this broken relationship and sin had entered the world, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden. He sent him out of paradise to work the ground that was cursed, which he was taken. He drove out the man at the east of the Garden of Eden. What was that moment like? What was it like, Adam clawing and crying and screaming, don't, don't make me leave? What was it like for God to send his most treasured creation away from his presence? They could never, in their sinful state, live in the presence of a holy and perfect, high voltage, all good God, any more than you can pitch a tent and take a nap on the sun. You'd be consumed by the glory. We have no place with this God. In our imperfections, we have no dealings with the perfect. But even when the snake, you can see him starting to smile that he has won. He has gotten revenge on the God that he is so jealous of. He is dead wrong. We see in verse 15 that I told you to underline earlier that God makes a promise to this wicked serpent. He says that he might feel like he has a foot up on God, but one day he will most certainly be crushed, no matter all the evil and good that he thinks he's done in this world, that he will actually be crushed by a man. That no matter what infliction and curse he puts into your life, there will actually be a true hero coming one day that will stop evil forever that a champion would come and destroy the serpent. And the story goes on. And if you, if you read this before, you know what happens. Like the rest of this Old Testament, the story goes on, right? And God's people, his children, like they, they do good for a bit. Then over and over and over again, they fail. Over and over again, we see God's rebellious turn, turn away from the life of a, with the author of life and actually turn to death in their own sin. 
But thousands of years pass and a new character enters the, enters the scene and everything we just read makes sense. Every single detail about Genesis 3.15 finds its place in the man Jesus Christ. That he shows up on the scene and he actually doesn't fall to the wicked temptation of the, of the deceiver. But he actually holds fast to the words of God with every last ounce of strength that he has. That he believes God all the way till the end. This hero wouldn't actually stay in the paradise garden with his father. No, he'd actually be dragged out of the garden by soldiers to be killed. That this hero would not bring animal skins to clothe the the naked uh, shame of them like this temporary thing. No, he would actually have his own flesh ripped off on a cross so he could create a new kind of covering for our shame. This hero would never eat from the wrong tree, but instead would be nailed to a tree and killed by those he loves the most his most treasured creation. This hero is Jesus and he is actually the main character of this entire story. This story is of heartbreak, yeah, but it's not just because God had to send away his most treasured creation. No, it's way worse than that. It's because God knew the only way to welcome them and to welcome us back home with him is for his perfect eternal son, Jesus Christ, to be slaughtered and his glory and his goodness in this story would not be outdone. Our place, your place, my place in this story, guys, is actually really simple. We are not the hero. We are in desperate need of rescue right now. We are not the hero, but we actually must be saved. No matter what church background you have, how many times you've heard this story, what you need to know right now is that you have been infected with this exact same sin that we read about in this story that you're not the victim here, but actually it's your sin and my sin and everybody's sin around you that Jesus was actually nailed to that cross for. It was actually our sin that he was paying for as he bled and died. We need to know tonight that Jesus actually hung up and gave his life on the cross. The snake again must have surely thought that he had won. I beat the prophecy. God was wrong again. I win only for three days later for Jesus to burst out of that tomb in all of his glory and might and crush that serpent under his foot once and for all. And he did that. So as, has, as his power is unleashed, even tonight, he could welcome sinners back home, his beloved children back home, not to fight for their value, worth, and significance in this life anymore, but for him to speak his precious, treasured words over us. I love you. I forgive you. Welcome home. There's only one thing, one single thing for us to do tonight, guys. There is literally one thing to do, and it's so amazing. This story is so good that it leaves you with one thing to do that you can actually do right now. Here, right now, believe. In a story, a narrative where our disbelief in God has fractured everything, that our distance from God is directly proportional by how we have not believed in him. That our distance from him is just because we did not believe him. That we have taken of the wrong tree every single day. That we have just wanted our own heroics. That we have wanted to write our own story, to pen our own narrative, to be the hero. 
Our propensity to do that has separated us from God. But tonight, what he's saying through this story, through the promise and the good news of Jesus Christ crushing the devil, is if you believe in that Jesus and what he's done for you, he will welcome you home tonight. Believe tonight in this truth that you are not the main character of God's story. Jesus actually is. And why that is that good news? It's because like me today, you are actually in desperate need of a rescue. And that is actually the only thing, like we talked about last week, that is the only thing that qualifies you to be saved. Jesus is here tonight and my hope is that you would actually believe you need rescue. And that it is far better than the world's demand on you to be a hero. Could we tonight drop the act, guys? Could we stop the shallow conversations and trying to impress one another? Could we be a people who look beyond where we're from, what our major is, what significance we're gonna make of our lives and just stop and bask in the amazing love that God has for us? Jesus is here to save, but he's not here for the healthy. He's only here for the sick. He's not here for the strong, but the weak. He's not here for the heroes, but he is actually the ultimate hero coming here for those in desperate need of rescue. Is that you tonight? Sin and death have infected us through our disbelief. Now, would you let your simple belief in Jesus be your salvation? It's just that simple. Would you get swept away by the story of your God and the incredibly deep love that he has for you? Let's pray. God, I just want to confess before everybody that I have a white knuckle grip on my life. That I want to write a story that is of importance and significance that when people look back on my life, they will be in awe and they will remember every single thing that I've done. And God, that is from the pits of hell. Would you release my grip on that right now? Would you save me from looking to myself as more important than I ought, but actually that I would look to you as my savior, God, that I would actually see that I am a wretched sinner in need of a great savior. And God, I pray for Salt Company tonight as we start this year, that this simple truth of the gospel, this good news would just reign supreme over these people, that you would bring a fire down in Tiff and Iowa even tonight that would set these people ablaze, not with how good and impressive they are or how amazing their story is going to be, but how unbelievable the love of God is for them. And how unbelievable it is that he would wrap us up into his grand narrative. And how unbelievable it is that the end of my story is written and I'm going home to be with them. God, would so many people in this room right here hear the imperfect words of a preacher talk about a perfect God who loves us perfectly. That we would be so enraptured by the love of God that tonight we would throw our hands up in surrender and just say, yes, God, I believe. I'm done believing the lies from this world and I just want to believe that you are good enough. You are my satisfaction. And that I can actually experience the love of God forever like I was meant to do. God, this is gonna take a miracle, but you can do it.